0: And I think the experience, the experience is what customers value. So you know, I would say you know, really focus, you know, the, the product is the experience.
1: Product is, okay. Now, CK, do you agree with the metaphysical question and answer that a product is the experience?
2: Yes, it is. Uh, it is the experience. It's a really tricky question, though. It's, it's, uh, it's a fun question to talk about to begin with. Um, as, as Max was uh, saying before we, get, we got started, you know, everything was product a couple of years ago. Now everything is becoming an as-as a service. So software as a service. You know, revenue as a service. So everything is becoming as a service. So it's pretty interesting. Um, you know, based on the definitions of today, especially looking at software products, in my mind there are two attributes that makes a product. The first one is something that adds value to the customer, which brings back Max's point about uh, experience. And the second one is some form of reusability, right? So it's, it's always easy to compare a product with service. So if someone's building a house, if you want a specific house built in a specific way, you will go and build a house for you, that would be a service. But there's an apartment that a lot of people can reuse and hey, it's, it works for 80% of the people, then, then it's a product. Again, it's, uh, you know, it, it's tricky because the definition is tricky here, but something that's, that adds value and something that's reusable that can be benefited by 80% of the masses, potentially.
1: Well, there you go. The question of the day, what is product? And the definitions here, which I like, is the fact that it has to be some type of experience. It's got to add value, and there's a reusability component. That is probably just the tip of the product iceberg. And we are here today live on the Scale Heroes podcast. We've got Max, we've got CK, and we've got a lot of discussion to have around scaling product. And my name is Ryan Fullen. I speak about simplicity across the world and how to create clarity through confidence, what you're saying. And we have a very confident and very capable guest today because she is part of a company that some would consider a unicorn. And we're going to learn about how she and her team have offices all over the world to deliver product and not only deliver, but scale it. So before we kick off the show, I want to remind anybody who is close to London that we actually have an actual meetup. So we have these podcasts every week, and now we're going to IRL, In Real Life. It's going to be the London Meetup. It's going to be Wednesday, March 6th from 7 to 8 p.m., and it's going to be how to align product and engineering teams when you're facing hyper growth, hyper growth, not just regular growth. And we've got Dave from uh, Paddle. We've got Max, who's going to be there, uh, Maria from Sync. And if you want to register, go to the ScaleUp Academy Facebook page. Now that is our selfish plug, but it's not selfish because it's for you, but let's kick off the conversation. Max, take it away, let's meet who CK is, and then let's talk product, and then product, and then product.
0: Brilliant, thank you, Ron. Um, CK, thank you so much for, for taking the time and really looking forward to this conversation, you know, especially you know, with the place that you're at in, in your career, but also the place that the TalkDesk is at the moment. You know, I've been lucky enough to work in a a number of companies and organizations where you you work in a number of different locations, and I know that you're facing similar challenges at the moment. So I'd love to hear about um, yourself and TalkDesk and the challenges that you've got about working distributed. So let's start. Let's let's jump into it. um...
2: First of all, thanks for having me here. Uh, It's a pleasure. Maybe I'll start with a little bit of context. CK, Sharanya Kunin, you can call me CK. I head product at TalkDesk. Uh, talk test started about five to six years ago. We started as zero, two, three, four people, and today we're about five hundred plus. We have offices in, we have uh, offices in six different locations and with, uh, with some of the uh, offer acceptance just about ten minutes ago, just my team, which is product and design team, is in eight locations. so we 've grown really fast and towards the end of this year we're hoping to reach thousand, uh, keeping my fingers crossed. And it's, it's very interesting because one of my most uh, favorite statements someone made a couple of years ago was, talent is all around the world, but opportunities are not. So given that talent is all around the world, uh, in the product team, the way we've started hiring is not only people who are in the locations where we have offices, but we have people in locations where we don't have offices who completely work remotely. So it's, uh, it's a fairly distributed team, and it's been, it's been a lot of fun so far.
0: Fantastic. And I think you know, the aspiration to be up to a thousand people, I think, you know, you're sort of one, two years ahead of, of, of where we are here at Munez. So I'm super excited to sort of get the inside track uh, and be able to sort of you know, navigate these winds of and seas of growth you know, as we get there. I think for me, I've, I've worked in a number of different organizations across a number of different countries. And that combined with scaling is like a double problem. You know, you've, you've got you know communications issues and you've got growing issues. Um, or would I really let's dive straight into it? And yeah, I'd really like to understand what you think the biggest challenges are. You know, with these people in so many different places.
2: Uh, sure. Yeah, I have. Uh, again, the, there are multiple challenges. I'll probably go through some of them. Uh, you know, just to begin with, if I have to put all of them in one word, I would say the biggest challenge really is habit. Uh, most companies, the the the, the revolution of uh, distributed teams have only been around for the last five, six years, right? So like 10 years ago, you would have seen uh, advertisements that said, you know, you have to relocate to San Francisco or you have to relocate to London to to be a part of this job. But in the last five to six years that has changed, we can work completely remotely. And many companies and many people, including us are probably going through the transition of being in totally co-located team to being in distributed teams And one of the major challenges that I see with people and with myself sometimes is habit. And what I mean by habit is a lot of times we're so used to lobby conversations and, uh, you know, talking to people that sit right next to us uh, and, you know, kind of like sharing information with people that are around us. And I think it's uh, although you have the right mindset, you have to make a conscious decision of changing that habit and really translating those lobby conversations into something that's on a video with the team so I think uh, habit is something that I think is one of the major challenges but to to be more precise there uh, most of the challenges I can ca- kind of probably put in three categories the first one is context because you know you're you're constantly talking to the team in terms of what needs to be done but you also need to share why that needs to be done and a lot of that why again ha- usually used to happen in the lot lobby conversation like by the way we're doing this because of this right so but but when you have distributed team, that you need to find a better way to share that context to pretty much everyone in the team. So I think that's kind of one of the, the first challenges in distribute, distributed teams. Uh, of course, people have solved it. So all of these are solvable, but that's, that's probably the first. The second one is culture. And even in distributed teams, when you have, like, I had a team in India, Ukraine, Canada, East Coast, and West Coast of US. It was really interesting in a couple of years ago once i told a guy hey you're kicking ass right i just sent him an email he was doing such a fantastic job i sent him an email saying you're kicking ass and then after some time the next day no response next day he sends me an email saying hey am i doing okay why did you say i'm kicking ass i think he took it as he's probably not doing a good job so, you know, like when you're using words and terminologies, be really careful. Don't assume that people know kind of like the way you speak. Although everyone speaks English. Um, I think the cultural differences was, was an interesting one. And then the last bucket that I would say is, uh, is empathy. Because when you're with a person in the same room, you see how they react. You see their facial reaction. It's a lot easier to empathize, right? When they say something, you know that person, you know that they wouldn't make a mistake. So you're like, okay. You know, she is doing that because of this reason. But when you don't have the personal connection, it's hard to empathize with someone else. So it's very easy to point fingers and say, hey, them versus us, you know, I don't know why she's thinking about it this way and, and all of that, uh, all of the areas. So kind of empathizing with people remotely versus, you know, someone who sits right next to you is a lot more easier when the person sits right next to you. So you, again, need to make a conscious decision of, you know, like going above and beyond to empathize with people uh, across teams.
0: Okay. No, I think, I think that's really interesting in terms of context, culture, and, yeah, and empathy. I think those those buckets are, you know, really, really spot on. And I love your place about about habit forming, but but obviously creating a habit, you know, as we all know, going to the gym, not eating sugar, you know, all the, yes, you know, January, yeah. It, it's hard work so how do you i'd love to dive into those three buckets but 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 first let's i'd really love to explore how do you how do you make habits for yourself and then after after you got into that then perhaps you know how do you instill habits in other people which is you know for, for me the sort of the very interesting challenging question
2: yeah so yeah and, and by and, the way don't uh, don't get me started on gym and sugar because i've never been able to figure that habit out uh but but yeah i think it's a good question of how do you really create that habit for yourself and for the team uh, there There are multiple things that I' would say there. I think <clears throat> the habit starts at the top, right so I think uh, you know for I think one of the discussions that we were going to have was about how do you make sure that across locations you can still have a good discussion <clears throat> you can still have a good debate argument and come to a conclusion that makes sense for the company and uh, you know the the habit in many cases starts from the top, so for example, when you go to a meeting do not start the meeting with, hey, I have an opinion, what do you think? It may work when everyone is in the same location, but in distributed teams with different culture, people don't speak up, right? They don't open up. So from the top, from the CEO, uh, state the outcome, state the context, and leave an open-ended question for people to respond and think about and have an argument, right? And I think it, again, it starts from the top because once your CEO starts doing it, once your head of product starts doing it, People are more open to opening up, disagreeing. Which it is—it's re- a really good thing to disagree and still, uh, you know, come to a conclusion that makes sense for the entire company. So I think habit starts from top, from your CEO, from your, you know, uh, exec team to everyone else.
0: Okay. I think I think it's interesting role modeling I do see you know I, I spent quite a bit of my career in the military and obviously that is very heavily um, you're very heavily trained and educated to lead by example and I think yeah. I think that is you know probably one of the most important tools that you have as a leader in terms of sort of walking the walk um, your question on your your point about open questions is really interesting how do you because I think what, what I've learned is that I found there's a place for open questions and there's a place not to use open questions it can sort of get away from you and you sort of open up the solution quite widely. So how, yeah. how do you stop that? How do you, how do you keep the open question to get that feedback, but avoid going off on a tangent or, or addressing the wrong problem or addressing the wrong question?
2: Yeah, it's, it's really tricky. That's why, I mean, there are multiple things there, just thinking out loud. Uh, first is deciding between when you want to open it up for questions versus not. Right, because again, your time is really precious. You need to make sure that every meeting has the right outcome. So when do you want to open it up for questions versus not? But in areas where you want to open it up for questions, um, I, I heard somewhere about the statement that computers are stupid because they can only answer, they cannot ask the question. Now, of course that's changing with artificial intelligence and whatnot today. But the the, 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 the hardest part is really framing the right question and having making sure that that question uh, you know, again, gives the context, gives the outcome, and then you, you frame the question in such a way that you don't go tangentially in multiple different areas. So I think, um, again, like most of the time that as a leader you need to spend potentially is to frame the right question versus framing the answer so that the team can frame the answer for you.
0: I, I think that's really empowering. I think that also well, – the, the the positive part of that is um, – if you ask the question, you can see what the answer is and you can then test, okay, is my perception as well? Because if they're coming up with something that's very, very different, you yeah. obviously know there's, a, there's, a, there's an information gap there that, yeah. that, that you've not bridged, which you, and you wouldn't uncover that if you said, right, here's my hypothesis, this is, yeah, and, you, and you wouldn't uncover it. So I think that's a very clever yeah, uh, thing. It's,
2: it's interesting because I've gone into a lot of these meetings with an opinion, still opening up with a question, and of course, in some meetings, I felt, hey, maybe my opinion is better. But in most meetings, I feel my, some, someone else's opinion was much better than mine. And if I had really started with stating that opinion, chances are, again, it depends on personality and culture, chances are we would have just, you know, we would have just stuck with that opinion versus getting people's feedback. Uh, you know, I would say 70 out of, 7 out of 10 times, uh, the opinion that people come, come back with and the feedback that we get from them is much better than what I would have thought was the right thing to do going into the
0: meeting And I think that's really powerful because you know, that allows you know, that allows you the faith that you sort of share the perception um, yeah. and that that you've got the faith and trust in the team to come you know, you know the product whatever the product may be Ryan and I think we discussion what the product was at the start of the show you know the product you know the customer um, best and you know, and you're the best people to come up with an answer and I'm here as a, a sounding board a potential voice of challenge. Because you know, as a leader, you, you have a different context, you are exposed to different information, um, and this allows you to check your perspective as well as check the team's perspective. So I think it's, yeah. I think it's a very powerful. Um, you know, I think you know, this is a little bit of a dangerous topic, but I do think there are cultural differences. How have you found navigating you know, what is a potential minefield in terms of managing different cultures and, and coming up with this candid, open approach across different cultures?
2: Um, I think the step one there is really knowing the culture really well. So again, like work, working with different, uh, cultures and teams, I keep sharing this with my team quite often. It's very interesting where in few cultures, uh, it's just like super blunt, Hey, this just doesn't make sense. And then you have a conversation. I find it really easy. I appreciate that because you don't have to think about what the other person is thinking, right? They're just like super open. Uh, in some cultures that not, that's not necessarily the case and that's okay. Uh, I think really the, the starting point is understanding the culture really well. Uh, knowing that, again, it's, it's, it's a tricky part because when you see understanding the culture, you still cannot stereotype the entire culture, right? So there's each person still is different and they have their own nuances and ways of doing things. But there are some common traits between 70 to 80% of the people, uh, you know, based on their culture, right? So I think understanding the culture is really important. And then based on that, depending on, you know, which culture do you have in the meeting, um, approaching it based on that. So for example, if you have cultures where they're really open, sometimes I've gone into a meet before I go into a meeting, I have a one-on-one with a few people saying, Hey, I know you're very opinionated. Fantastic. I really, really love it. But for this meeting, let's have, you know, these people talk first and then you can share your opinion." And it it is work because if I have to say that in the meeting in front of like twenty people, it doesn't work, so sometimes I take it up offline, talk to them, and then go to the meeting, so everyone's voices can be heard there
0: I think um, you yeah, know wargaming or, or preparing before big meetings, yeah, especially you know board meetings or other things like that, I think you know exactly right or with external. Um, you know, with third parties, you know, the, you 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 as a leader and your team would say things in a very different way if you're just all in the same company or all on the same team versus yeah. you know, if you've got people who are external there. And I love what you meant about what you said about not falling into the trap of, you know, blandly applying, you know, an entire you know view you to a group of people I think that's very smart I think you've got you learning the culture um, but also learning the people as well uh, and on an individual level because yeah there is as you said there's always variance and I think building on top of what you're saying there's a bit about building the culture and I know you spend a lot of time traveling we were talking about it in the the before the start of the show but then obviously building those personal relationships so you can apply that the individual lens you know you, you talked about traveling a lot um, and seeing the people in, you know, I'm assuming from that my assumption is that you see the huge importance to face-to-face. I'd love to explore that a bit more. You know, how do you, how often do you go? Why do you travel? What do you do to sort of to break, break beyond the sort of the national stereotypes or cultural stereotypes to really get to know people? I'd love to find out.
2: Sure, sounds good, yeah. Um, so I think however much we have distributed remote teams, some level of in-person meetings. I think uh, Ryan use this word IRL. What did you say IRL
1: was? Yeah, it's in real life.
2: Yes, um, that that was the first time I'm hearing that, so I'm I'm <laughs> going to remember that next time. So I think some form of in real life is really important, right? Especially in the first few months or few uh, first year of the company, because uh, you haven't again. You may or may not know the culture, right? So in in some cases you do because. Right now, everything is so distributed that you know some cultures, you don't know some cultures. So first, to understand the culture, spending some time uh, with a team there is really important. And then knowing each individual as much as possible personally, because for me to, for example, grab a person one-on-one and say, hey, you know, don't voice your opinion just yet. It's a lot more easier when I know the person versus telling someone that I don't know, right? It doesn't really come across the right way. So knowing people individually is important as well. And then once you know that, again, you're able to empathize much better in terms of why she's asking you to do that. So you're able to trust the person much better. So uh, I've been pretty lucky in the sense that first I don't have a lot of travel restrictions. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, I travel to, to my team as much as possible, especially the first few months, years. And for example, the last I joined Desk about nine to 10 months ago, I probably spent like uh, 40% of my time in Portugal because we have a huge team there. And then for teams across the uh, the rest of the regions or locations, we have a quarterly offsite where we bring the entire team together so we can get to know each each other and have a good discussion uh, about the product.
0: Is is that the leadership team or, or your team or every quarter?
2: So it's uh, every quarter when we, so when we do this in Portugal, for example, it's the entire team. When we do this in US, it's the the team across everywhere in the US So not necessarily just the leadership team. Uh, there will be like some set sections of that just for the leadership team, but we would have like one day for the entire team.
0: Sure. I'd like to dive into this a bit more. Do you, you know, how do you approach that? Do you sort of, do you do you know, have meals with people? Do you go out after work? And, you know, how, do you, you know, how do you sort of understand the team a bit more and how, how do you understand the, sort of, the people?
2: Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's a combination of two things. Uh, one is, of course, you know, not, not, one of the things about uh, having remote meetings, distributed teams is when you get on a meeting, right? So when you get on a Zoom meeting, we're all work all the time. So it's all professional talk, because when you get on a Zoom meeting and you start talking about your husband and your dog, it feels like you're wasting somebody else's time. But when everyone is sitting right next to you, you talk about your husband and your dog all the time, right? Because you have like a little bit of time in between. So you really get to know people on a personal level, which hardly happens in Zoom meetings. So having these offsites really helps. So at TalkDesk, uh, actually, I was pleasantly surprised because they TalkDesk really knows how to have good offsites. sites So we have a great outing now in Portugal, where we had the entire company in Portugal where we went for an offsite. It was a two days team building activity. And the most interesting part is I communicate with maybe 30, 40% of them on a regular basis. There are so many people that have not communicated with in the past. It was so interesting to see how many leaders that are in the organization, just based on those team building events. So some form of team building events across is really important because you get to know about the person a lot more. And then, of course, we do have offsites, which is just let's talk about the strategy. Let's talk about what we want to do for the next 12 months and then really have like an argument, disagreement, and then come to a conclusion in terms of what we want to be able to do there.
1: When I'm hearing what you're saying, it it makes me think of a sporting analogy, almost as though there's a coach and then there's the team and there's these different players with different strengths. So my question to you is how, as this leader, who is really a coach that you're, you're talking about this. How do you go about finding the captain of the team and the assistant captain of the team? And as you're managing these scaling teams across multiple cultures and across multiple playing fields, are there any things that you do to find those individuals who might become leaders in those subdomains, might become the captain of the team, maybe giving them a little bit more power and autonomy, supporting them and their personal brand? How do you pick and choose the leaders to help you as you build this?
2: Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely a very it's it's very important it's very tricky as well because when you're bringing in leaders that are completely remote, you need to be able to bring in folks that are completely self-driven, right? So you know who are kind of like entrepreneurs who do anything it takes across regions to make it happen. So it's it's not it's not easy to be able to hire the right people. Uh, but I think a couple of things that goes on in my mind. The first one is uh, anyone that you hire. For, for me needs to be better than me, right? So they need they need to be better than you, and the team that your leaders hire need to be better than them. So a lot of times when we hire folks, we're hiring people based on you know complementing skill sets. Um, sometimes followers, but that doesn't really work. So you know you're in completely different locations. Hire people who are better than you who can be leaders. Uh, the second one that I've done in some organizations and talked as we're still figuring out what's the best way to do is. Your, your leaders need to have some form of P&L responsibility for their product area. So, um, you know, a lot of times people use this word, product managers are like the CEO of the organization. Few people accept, few people vehemently oppose that. But the point there is, if you owned the P&L um, and if you're really responsible for the success and failure of that product and business, then you're kind of empowered enough to make the right decisions, right? So. You, know, you, you have the team, you have the budget, you have to hire, you have to make it happen uh, with, with no excuses. But really, like you own the success and failure of the product, which is what I mean by owning the p of the product as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, again, hiring someone that's better than you, that's in some cases been there, done that, but has the right attitude, most importantly, and giving them the empowerment of p responsibility, I think is, is, is helped. Uh, in some cases, you also need to know when it's not working, and what do you do about that, right? Because when you hire remote teams, every single person has to be a self-starter, or self-driver. So you need to be able to assess when it's not working, and then make the right call based on that as well.
0: I think I think that's a really interesting point because so, you know we we at Muniz, we have you know empowering empowering the product leads a lot. Um, you know, ideally being able to say no to anybody, including the CEO, including risk and compliance. Obviously if you say no to risk and compliance, you've got to have a, you know, a very good justification for doing that. But how do you how do you make sure that people are making the good quality decisions, especially remotely? It's very difficult in person. How do you sort of really dive into that and and, you know, and see these decisions and check these decisions?
2: Uh, it was interesting. So we had I was telling you about the offsite we had a couple of days ago. My CEO was kind of saying, yeah, it, it's, 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 it's right in most cases. But he was saying this statement, which I thought was really interesting. He said, uh, there is no right or wrong decision. There is just lack of decision making. So we all know that. So you can make decisions based on data. There are companies that have started based on extreme data, database decision making. And they've still not been successful. You can make decision based on gut. But that also has its plus and minus. End of the day, any decision that you make, you're gonna do the best that you can based on data, validated with multiple people, validated with customers, but it could be wrong and that's okay. So the first one for anyone is to know that it's okay to make wrong decisions. It's not okay to not make decisions, right? So it's not okay to wait until your head of product or your head, you know, your CEO makes a decision for you. So that I would say is the first thing, making sure that they know they have to make the decision it's totally okay if they make, make the wrong decision. You know, we're we're an agile and nimble company to be able to recover and change from that. Um, and then any decision that's made, making sure that everyone is aware of that decision when applicable, right? So you need to make that call and make people aware so that, you know, everyone's kind of following through the same decision as well.
0: So, you know, so I think the the point about not making a decision, it always reminds me um, – the band of brothers um, analogy from a long time ago. I just remember the, the sergeant saying he wasn't a bad leader because he made bad decisions. He was a bad leader because he made no decisions. Yeah. You know, that always, always has stuck with me. Um, yeah. but, but I think one of the things that I found helpful, one of the analogies I found helpful is, is driving. You know, if you get in a car, you're trained, you've got your license, you know where you're going, you're driving, and you have an accident, fine. These, these things happen. Yeah, but, it, but if you're drink driving, it doesn't matter if you've crashed the car. You know, the really just the act of drink driving, you know, is a mistake. So I sort of class sort of my role as trying to find drink drivers, you know, preferably before they crash. Yeah. Um, and sort of keeping an eye on that, looking at the quality of decision making. You know, are these people looking at the right data? Have they done the homework? You know, um, challenging the thought process behind it. You know, the ultimate decision is theirs, but I I want to sort of make sure that I've got this sort of emergency button for sort of for the customer and the company, which can go, okay, you're doing driving, and um, it's not that I disagree with your decision, I just disagree that you're know, you, uh, yeah, you I disagree that you know I think you're making bad decisions in general. Yeah. So let's yeah. let's stop and let's talk about the decision making, not about this one decision, but about the fact that I think you making those bad decisions that that analogy has been really helpful for me um, right. and also talking it through with the product leads is sort of you know it's up to you whether you drive the car but if i think you know if i think you've been at the source then you know this is a this is a bit of a different conversation
2: yeah yeah and i think uh, one of the things that i've kind of shared with uh, most of the product leads that uh, that i've worked with is you know you and your engineering counterpart think that you guys are the co-founders of the company and think that you are putting money from your pocket, right? This is a private company. This is your, your money that you're putting into the company. If that was the case, if this was your money and this was your company and you were the co-founders, one, would you not make a decision? Two, would you give any excuses? Three, would you point finger at anyone else? Probably not, right? Because you have a stake in the company and you're making you know, anything it takes to make that your company successful. So think about it as you and your engineering counterpart as a co-founder and you guys are making the call and i'm just an investor right so think about like you know i'm gonna approve you because even the co-founders and ceos have a boss right so you're investors think about me more as an investor you guys are the co-founders who's going to make this happen uh for few people that works really well for a few not necessarily because again you need to have that mindset for that Uh, but in many cases that's kind of what i expect from the team as well because this is your company it's your money, you have to make it successful,
0: make the right decisions, and it's okay to fail. No, I think yeah, I think that's you know incredibly, you know, incredibly powerful. I think how do you, especially with distributed teams, how do you how do you get into it? How do you know if a team's coming up to you and making a decision that you would disagree with or even worse can't understand, how do you get how do you get into it to so really sort of, you know, you want to give them this power, but then there's sort of this flashing alarm bell going off. How do you sort of get into it?
2: Uh, sure, yeah. I think it, uh, it depends on what is the forum for disagreement, right? So in, we have meetings where we have 50 people, versus we have meetings where we have four or five people. So as much as possible, if, if it's a decision that I specifically don't agree, uh, you know, I, I think having it in a smaller forum and really understand that, understanding the context once again. Uh, because more than disagreeing, I may, I may still disagree, but I may be wrong, right? So I think the first one, you start with, okay, what's the outcome that we want to accomplish for the company? Not for you or me, but what's the outcome we want to accomplish for the company? Uh, what is the context for that outcome, right? So your outcome could be, you know, I want to kill this specific competition. Uh, and then context is, why do we want to do that today? Why, why is there a sense of urgency versus why can't this be done next year? So giving the context um, and then kind of talking it through with that person who gave that idea that I may, may or may not agree with, going through, okay, so if we did this, does it help the outcome? If we did this, does it help the context? And then I really need to have an opinion in terms of if I don't agree with an idea, why, right? And then we kind of talk to it. Uh, and I, I, I truly do believe that after talking through that, I might change my mind or I may be successful in changing the other person's mind, but if the outcome is achieved and the context uh, is, is set right, at least we can have that good conversation to see if that's a good decision or not.
0: I think yeah, I think you touched on something quite important there, which is the difference between sort of um, whether you agree with somebody versus whether you understand the decision. And yeah. what I found, what I found is, you know, ninety percent of the problems that I have is, you know, everybody's actually saying the same thing. They just, they just m- misunderstand each other or the context. And, you know, and right. it's only the ten percent of the time where people actually just fundamentally disagree. Um, but yeah. then, but but with distance and and distributed teams, that's really tough. Sort of. Um, do you do you phone people up? Do you jump on a Skype? Do you do you even fly out to see people? Like sort of how do you how do you get that tacit knowledge beyond, you know, what I think doesn't work as Slack, what I think doesn't you, know, you know, or doesn't work as text message. I've got that very wrong in the past. You know, how do you how do you get beyond that into sort of really understanding, you know, trying to make sure is this a misunderstanding or this is or we just disagree? How how do you how do you get in that, into that?
2: Yeah, um, I think the good thing is now pretty much at top desk and most of the other companies were when, when you get on a video you, you're on a video right so you can see each other's face, which is really important. Uh, in, in the past, I had one on ones and I had meetings and we kind of stuck to those meetings and one on ones once again like you don't have that lobby type conversation in in video. So what what we did right now is as much as possible. If I have to talk to someone like right now for like 20 minutes, I don't wait until my next one-on-one. I just ping them and ask, hey, can we get on a call? Can we get on a call for like 15 minutes? And there are so many such 15, 20 minutes conversations I have in my pajama pants because I wake up, I remember something, and then like the first thing I talk to the team. So having such a more frequent conversation helps first in setting the context because I do think that um, if someone is giving an idea that I totally don't agree with. In many cases, it's because I did not set the right context. Mm -hmm. And it's mostly because I don't have time, I'm traveling, right? I talk something to the CEO, so I have a lot more context, but I haven't done a good job of passing that context to every single person in the team. So, you know, first you talk to the person, explain the context uh, just as a casual conversation and then talk about it. In most cases, this this has gotten resolved. There's been uh, maybe, you know, maybe one or two in the last like five years where I've completely opposed uh, a point of view of someone else, although our context and everything else matched.
0: And what happened then? Because what's always dangerous is you're empowered until I disagree with you and then... then, uh,
2: The the question is, okay, so if you agree that, that decision will also help the outcome and context, the question is, what is the, the risk in trying that? If the cost of trying that is pretty small, try it out. You know, you may be wrong, somebody maybe, because ultimately it's the outcome for the company. If it's his idea or her idea and it works, fantastic. Mm-hmm. So if the cost of doing that is fairly small, you just try it out. If the cost of doing that is high, then you figure out a better way to validate that, right? It's not you versus me, end of the day's customer, end of the day it's business. So how do you like validate it better with some form of a prototype or proof of concept or pitch deck or whatever you call it, right? So how do you validate? But if, it's, if, if the cost is not too high, just just try it out. Just, just do something pretty small, try it out and validate it because you could totally be wrong and the other person could be right. Mm.
0: And I think, yeah, so yeah, we, we talk about empowerment a lot and I'm sure, I'm sure you do and a lot, you know, lots of other people do um, and in some of the other organizations I've worked in, but, but you're empowered until you know, they dis- your boss disagrees with you and you don't have any power. You're empowered without the power, it's really, which really doesn't work. Um, and I think your, your point about context is, is really powerful. I think on that, I think especially with um, disputed teams, what I've been thinking through at the moment, and I'd love to get your sort of thoughts, is the difference between sort of push communication and pull communication. Because you know, I could set up like loads of meetings and tell everybody the same thing again and again and again. It's going to be very boring for them. Uh, not going to be very productive. You know, but how, you know, where's the burden on me informing the context of the team versus them pulling it? And how can we? You know, how? What are your tips on sort of getting that balance right, or, or how to do either better?
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I'll, I'll give an example from what one of my previous CEOs did that I absolutely love. But yeah, push communication versus pull. At this point in time, we kind of use a combination of both. Uh, it is a lot of push as well in some cases. Pull. The good thing is some tools today, like Slack and others, they've uh, they've kind of figured out the pull communication model more, right? So it's not like hey, I'm going to send this like you know, announcement email or product summary email that everyone's gonna look at, everyone's asking for info and anyone can give that info. So that's really helping out in that pool side of things. But one of the things that I really liked uh, a previous CEO of mine that did was, I thought it was brilliant. Uh, so any information you have to share, I think eight times or something before it registers in the person's head. And if you go to any company, most of the times, especially in startups like, hey, I don't know the strategy, I don't know the vision. What is your strategy and vision? If you go and ask execs, they always feel, we have shared the strategy and vision. What are you talking about? So uh, it was interesting because my previous CEO, he used kind of like the same deck to share the strategy and vision. He's done that multiple times. And we used to have this yearly company kickoff, sales kickoff, quarterly offsites, and all that fun meetings. And what he did was he would put like an hour and a half or two to say company strategy. And what he did in that time is he wouldn't present the strategy. He would have the slides. Uh, we had this huge ball that gets passed to people. You would pass it on to the first person. He has to talk about the first one or two slides in terms of, you know, overall strategy. And that person would pass the ball to somebody else and they'll have to talk about the strategy. It was really funny because we've heard him talk about strategy and vision so many times. You feel like you know it on a high level. But when you have to present it, it's like you don't you don't realize how hard it is to kind of like say the same thing, right? The first one or two times we did this, every single person said completely opposite things. And then slowly we kind of put a uh, script together for what our strategy is. And everyone started saying the same thing. This was because a lot of times you can tell for like 20 times, but someone else kind of grasping that and repeating it in an aligned strategy way is really important. And I thought he did a really good job of that. So rather than you pushing it all the time, have others push
1: it for you, right? So they can actually share the strategy themselves. No, so yes. I Sorry, Max, taking that kind of one step further, how do you see your, I mean, I, I would almost call these no-collar workers, a distributed team that that have their own autonomy. How do you see them as ambassadors for your company and ambassadors for growth? And how crucial is it that they can communicate that brand mission and value and what they do as you move from now to a thousand employees, are your current employees a big part of that growth strategy? How do you leverage them?
2: Yeah. Um, I don't know if I have a simple answer for that, but but definitely at least, I mean, my, my goal will be for the next level, right? So the mid-managers, the next level leaders uh, to be completely aligned with what I'm saying. My, my CEO's goal should be for me to be completely aligned with him, right? So I think, uh, of course, you can share it with really broad audience, but you know, every person should make sure that your direct reports at least have hundred percent alignment in terms of how you would talk about the strategy and vision, so that they can go and empower others. Um, I think in some cases, uh, again, if you're all sitting in the same room, it's 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 a lot more easier. But it's not really hard because you know every single person doesn't have more than like a maximum of twenty reports, right? Anywhere from two to three to twenty. If you have twenty reports, it's a different problem. That's you know that's a conversation for later. But everyone, you're, you're working very closely with maybe ten people on a day-to-day basis. Your CEO works very closely with those ten reports on a day-to-day basis. You absolutely are responsible to make sure that what you say as strategy and what your manager and what your team says is, is the same thing, and they are then responsible for empowering their teams.
0: How do you? Um, I, mean, I think it comes back to role modeling again. You know, what would you? What would you expect? You know, and I put myself in this position. You know, if the CEO. If the CEO was on my team, what would he expect me to say as as the leader of that team? So I use that as a sort of you know to make sure that I'm on point and you know and sort of trying to get across sort of the points that I think he's trying to get across and sort of the vision for the for the company. Um, how how do you um, how do you sort of check? And how, you know, what mechanisms of feedback do you get to make sure? Because if you lead a team, it's quite straightforward. There's like one layer, and you know, yeah. once, once you've got you know your your eight or twenty people. If you that's a big team, if you're, yeah. you know, you know those twenty people have got it. But, yeah, but what happens if you're doing you know you're leading leaders who lead leaders? You know, yeah. and, then, and then you're somewhat sort of filtered. How do you sort of make sure that that sort of that information is is being repeated? The right information is being repeated, and then it's getting down to getting down to everybody.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think uh, so. One of the things we do at Talk desk, for example, is uh, every quarter, my my CEO goes and sits with each team, and then they share what they've done. He kind of shares his strategy. They have an open conversation. So. Although you're kind of sharing the strategy with your your teams, it's so much better for them to directly hear from the, the CEO as well. So we only started doing that for the past about two to three releases, and that's helped a lot because they can always hear from their product manager. They can always hear from me. They can always hear from their manager, but hearing directly from the CEOs is a whole different thing. So that I think has helped a lot. Uh, because you 're like oh you're you, know, you do a lot of things and you need to be able to put all of those together and then connect it to why we are doing this and what 's the goal for like you know a year or two from now, and having those direct meetings with the CEO help the team as well so that's I think potentially one way um, and the the other one is I think today it's kind of interesting you have so many tools i'm, I'm not I would always say don't rely on tools because mm-hmm. tools tools are just tools right don't rely on tools, but there are so many tools today. There are tools that basically, you know, you could record your three minutes elevator pitch or you could record your uh, strategy and then post it on Slack and, and things like that. So everyone can take a look at it. So so that way, you know, it, it's all in one place, right? So we, there, there's a tool where you can just record uh, any conversation that you have and all the recordings are in one place. You can always go take a look at it. If there's something that someone is relaying the strategy in a different way than how you would do it, then give that person a feedback and change it. So it's not really siloed. I think there are tools today that has made collaboration better and kind of content in one place. So that that's helping as well.
0: I, you know I think that the, the point on video is quite a, quite a you know a very a very sort of the, the spot on. Yeah, you know, we've we've just realized this relatively recently. So we've created a channel in Slack, which is you know kickoffs and updates. And whenever somebody's going to create a big new feature or something's changed. You know, it gets kicked off properly with, this, you know, with the right people. We video it, and we put the video on the slide deck in that channel, and everybody knows if there's something new in that, then something's changed. And yeah. That you know, allows people to self-service without, without sort of holding another meeting. You right. know, I think that's, you know, that's made quite a big difference for us, and, and we've now right. said, look, you know, we're gonna try and share the information as much as possible, but, but you've, gotta, you've gotta hunt for it and get it, and here's an easy way to do it, and we've made it super easy.
2: Right. Um, yeah, I think uh, in the last about three to five years, the tools are becoming better, right? So before that, the tools were more push type, right? So you had to like push the information for everyone to look at. In the last three to five years, it's it's it, it is actually improving for distributed teams. So things like strategy or things like uh, you know roadmap or competitive differentiation for all of these now we have channels in Slack. So you know anyone posts information, anyone sees it. And yeah, you know, of course, like I or some of the other people in the team, we keep a close watch so we know what people are saying. And if they're saying something that we don't necessarily agree with, then you ping that person and have a conversation about it. But I think tools have improved a lot over the last couple of years for distributed working and collaboration, and uh, it, it's really helping. It still has a long way to go, but it's it's come a long way from the last couple of years.
0: Yes. No. No. Uh, yeah. I think the there has been an explosion in tools. I think people started using lots and lots of them. And now we're sort of seeing people come back and back and back and try and find you know, a few, a few tools that do sort of things very well. And also just you, know, you I know we're going to sort of run out of uh, time soon, but I think your point about the CEO, the team having the time with the CEO and that being a dialogue both ways, I think is something yeah. we found really powerful. Um, you know, we now try and get a member of the leadership team each with, with each of the teams, and just say, "Look, we're here to listen and have a, you know, a very open Q and A session." And by by doing it that way, you very quickly you very quickly see if, if a team's off track, or or if the information's not getting down, or if the context is very very different. You know, not you know that's not anybody's specific fault. That's just scale. That's just building fast. Things things happen. But I think you know just having open Q and A sessions with the CEO or a member of the leadership team you know, makes the team involved, it helps them sort of understand how they fit in and how their work's valuable, um, and it gives you as a leader the ability to sort of check the temperature of the team.
2: Exactly. To, yeah,
0: And to check their context, and I think, you know, I think that was a very powerful observation. I think we're going to, I think we're going to wrap up there, but I think um, I definitely learned a lot. I'm a little bit disappointed. We've run out of time. You know, I had at least you know, three, four other, you know, really interesting questions, and um, but, but, but thank you very much, I've learned a lot and I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to sort of exploring a couple of these new ideas um, here at Moniz. So thank you very much CK, it's, it's been fantastic.
2: Thank you so much. Thanks, Max and Brian. Thanks for having me. It's been fun.
1: Yeah. Well, before I give my breakdown that, that lays down all these crispy notes into a nice thought process, um, my favorite question at the very end is just if you had to go back in time and deliver the best single piece of advice to somebody in your place as they begin to try to figure out how to scale a product, what would that single piece of advice be?
2: Uh, don't confuse effort versus outcomes.
1: Okay. So, yeah. We're-
2: the, the thing is like, if anyone asks me, hey, how are you today? I, I, my answer is like, oh, I'm, all, I'm busy, right? So we're all always busy. Every single person is always busy today. But um, I think sometimes having that check on, hey, is my business really adding to the outcome of the company or not? So in, in general for product or anyone else, it's, it's important to kind of remember effort is a completely different thing than outcome. And let's be more outcome focused than busy or effort focused. So that would, that would be it.
1: I love it. Well, as I listened to this entire breakdown of how to scale product, there was a lot of things that stuck out. And I was trying to think in my brain what it relates to in real life. And the best analogy that I came up with was a number of people building Legos together. And the reason I think about that is because you you talked about um, the three things, the context, the culture and the empathy. And if you've ever worked uh, together with someone and you put a whole bunch of lego pieces together and then you have the vision and you're like we're going to build this type of ship but we don't know exactly what it's going to look like but culturally everyone has different pieces culturally everybody might go about it a different way but at the end of the day you have the directions and you're sort of following so i feel like scaling product in your experience with Talkdex is this combination of empowering people to go ahead and put lego pieces in where they think but still having an overall guideline to say look this is what it needs to look like And it's empowering to put your own Legos into the system. And so the type of leadership, the servant leadership, the coaching leadership is letting everybody build it together. And so I just have this vision of this really exciting Lego project that you know where it's going, you don't know exactly how it's gonna get there, but you're letting your team continue to build it. And that's what will establish leading leaders who then lead more leaders. And if you're just talking about scaling up, it's not just about getting it done right or being active or busy, it's about everybody contributing the pieces and whatever colors, but there's gotta be that, that connector. They, they all have the little nubs and they all have the little receivers. So I think that if you are scaling product, it's like you're playing with Legos from people around the world. And I, that just visual stuck into my head. But giving the context, understanding the culture and knowing having that empathy um, is really something that I'm seeing is more important. And you have to have those elements for people to become ambassadors to grow, to keep them around. So I think this was refreshing. And to the f- to the very beginning, we said, what is product? I still don't think we know, but I do agree that it's gotta be experiential, it's gotta add value and it's gotta be reusable. So I've taken, uh, the next time I build Legos with a team, which I'm not sure when it's gonna be, I will think about this podcast and scaling product. So for everybody out there who is scaling a team, get the Legos out, make sure everybody has their pieces and empower them to keep building this product together uh if you enjoyed this discussion which i definitely did you can find more of these episodes on scaleupacademy.io thank you max thank you ck thank you to everyone out there who's trying to build some sort of product whether it's disguised as a service or not growth only happens when you grow together so keep it in mind and uh don't forget about the cultural differences with these remote teams across communication because the one big takeaway for me was really understand the players at the table so you can understand what pieces they're adding to the puzzle. All right, Uh, we're off. Enjoy scaling.